The Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The Coast is Calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California Coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. And the Pace Line is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now on to the show. Good morning, Paceliners. Michael Houghton here. It is 3.35 in the morning. Yes, 3.35 a.m. And uh, you're probably wondering, why is Hadi talking to us at such an ungodly hour? And why is he speaking in a hushed voice? Well, first of all, the hour. The hour is because this is when I get up now. In fact, I get up at 3 in the morning because my new job requires me to be at work by 4.30 a.m. And one of the things I love to do is try to get a little ride in before I get to work. A little ride is just basically a bike commute. So that's why I'm up early. I'm talking in a hushed voice because, well, my wife's still asleep and I don't want to wake her up. So we're going to ride to work. We're going to do our job and we're going to come home. And you are going to enjoy this show. Line, the podcast on two wheels, and we are two-thirds of the way to show number 100. Yep, that's episode number 66 and two-thirds, I guess. Maybe we'll have a special announcement when, we're, when we get two-thirds of the way through this episode. <laughs> we've, we've done dumber things. <laughs> Why not? So, yeah, so, if you can count on us for something. Yeah, <laughs> I'm stoked that all three of us are here, Hottie, Patty, and Fatty. <clears throat> Patty probably not being super stoked about me calling him Patty, but when you got three guys and only one of them has a nickname that doesn't end in a T sound, and there is a conceivable one that you're going to use, we're just going to do it. Sorry, Patty. <laughs> Patrick, I resisted Hottie for a while, and then I just gave in. After a while, you just give in to these things. That's what happens. It's a sign of middle age. <laughs> we just we stop caring and just accept it. <laughs> we just stop caring. Oh well, that's a genius plan. <laughs> oh my goodness! So uh, the pace line, of course, is one of the fine products you can get at Red Kite Prayer, where you will get not just this episode, but all of the links to other things we talk about photos, and, of course, actual written words. You can find this uh, this episode and all episodes of The Pace Line at Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Podbean, and, of course, iTunes, which is where we just recently got a really nice review. I wanted to read it. You guys cool with that? Yeah, please. So this is titled, Just Like Doing a Coffee Ride with Old Friends, and it is a five-star review. And it is by Scobow, who says, 
I love this show. The host chemistry is great. The topics are informative and priceless tips on personal nicknames. (laughs) (laughs) See, there you go. Team names, coffee, chamois, and so forth. I love it, guys. Keep them coming. Uh, You know, if someone gave us a three-star or two-star or one-star review, I'd go ahead and read it. But I'm happy that we are getting all these five-star reviews. So thanks, guys. I heard us complimented on another podcast. So somebody on a podcast, he was actually the guest on a podcast, but he himself has a podcast, complimented our podcast. So how's that? Who was it? Uh, His name is Mike Sayer, and he has a podcast called The Inside Line with Dave Tolls. Um, He gave us, you know, he cited our podcast as one of the things that gave him a little bit of inspiration to move forward with his own. Yeah, awesome. I saw Sayers recently. Um, perhaps the last hopper I was at. I'm trying to think, but yeah, uh, Mike Sayers. Uh, I mean, former pro rider. He was there during uh, the Nutrafig days of you know Warden's early formation. He was part of um, the Mercury team and mm-hmm. then later Prime Alliance, and was a team director uh, and an incredibly talented cyclist. Uh, a great tactician, super smart guy. He's got a really neat operation over in Davis, California now, a studio where he's uh, training cyclists and, you know, they do, uh, I think, VO2 max testing. They do a variety of testing, Hmm. you know, uh, coaching. Uh, I think they lead some indoor classes when it's raining too much uh, as it did this winter. But yeah, super nice guy. And he came up to me, um, I believe it was at the Lake Sonoma hopper to say hi and, you know, act like I didn't know who he was. And it's like, dude, I've known you for almost 20 years now. Um, You know, the uh, the only surprise there was that he remembered me. (laughs) Oh, you're so memorable. Memorable. (laughs) Yes, we have a professional sounding podcast where one of us can't say memorable. But speaking of memorable, Dave Toll, he needs to be credited as well. He is the Energizer Bunny of cycling announcing. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever been to, definitely, you you have to have been to one of the uh, events that he uh, is announcing. His voice can go on unstopped for dozens of hours. I actually know of a time when he talked like nonstop for like 10 hours. He's incredible and such a good guy. If you ever meet uh, Dave Toll, he is friendly. His voice sounds just like it does off uh, on. It sounds like it does on mic when he's off mic. He's just an amazing guy. Yeah, great to ha- uh, great that he has a podcast of his own that is uh, a lot of fun to listen to. So yeah. obviously, if you give us a little love, we're going to give some back, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was totally unplanned. Yeah. No, Toll's really amazing. His his passion for bike racing, his ability to be completely engaged. Uh, in a bike race, you know, even when it's just some little, you know, industrial park crit somewhere, if he gets hired, he brings it. He's oh, yeah. an absolutely remarkable talent. Yep. I've seen him at a number of Livestrong events back in the day. I've seen him at Rebecca's Private Idaho. He has announced the Rockwell Relay where people come in, you know, just one or two at a time over the course of like a dozen hours, and he was there for everyone. You need to call out everyone's name as they came across. Like you say, small event or big, he makes you feel like you are winning a race when you cross the line. The dude's awesome. So, hey, 
Kudos on the podcast, too. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Hey, speaking of voices yeah. and jobs, yeah. let's talk about y- your job, Hottie. Yes. You are biking to work nowadays, aren't you? I am. Uh, I've been rehired. I am, uh, yeah, back in the job marketplace, working again, a working stiff. Um, as you can probably <laughs> tell, yeah, broadcast is my thing. Uh, for about 25 years, I worked for a major talk radio station, and that station was up in Burbank, California. Now, I live near LAX, Los Angeles International Airport, and I made a habit of, of riding to work to Burbank two or three times a week. Um, it's 16 miles going in, and I'd, I'd extend it coming home just to get a little extra training. But my deal in Burbank, because I was middle management, I could, you know, I could walk in with my bike and walk in with my Lycra on and park my bike in my cube. And it really wasn't like bike commuting, like in a true sense. I didn't have to jump through the hoops and hurdles that, that a lot of people have to in order to ride to work. I, it was basically a training ride that I did before and after work. And that's really what it was. But that place laid me off. Uh, and I was out of work for a while. But I recently got a new job. It's back in radio. Um, Oddly, uh, I wouldn't say ironically because uh, that word gets misused a, a lot, but I am working on LA's biggest problem. And even though I ride to work and I'm a cyclist, I work on traffic. I work in traffic, like the cars, like the backups, the crashes. My job is I, I help um, produce six traffic reports an hour on a major AM station that specializes uh, basically in this type of reporting. They do news as well, but. So my job is to kind of coordinate this. It's almost like an air traffic controller. I'm just making sure all the the trains are staying on time and the people are saying what they need to say. What so about car chases? In, yeah, the car chases. I get involved in that too. So. Oh, wow. Now I envy you. <laughs> sure you do. Sure you do. <laughs> oh, those are magic. There's no car chase in the world like a car chase in L.A. Come on. Yeah. That's just... That's reality TV at its absolute finest. Yeah, well, the other morning we, we doubled up. We had two of them, which was great. So um, so that's what I do. And uh, But as soon as I, I got hired, I started plotting a way to start riding to work. Now, the good news was that um, I would have a much shorter bike commute. It would be cut in half going in, which is great. Um, the problem Where is, is it is, you're going now? Uh, it's near the La Brea Tar Pits. Oh, okay. So it's kind of mid-Wilshire. Yeah, mid-Wilshire. And for folks that don't know L.A. well, well, that's halfway between downtown L.A. and the 405 or the coast. That's where mid-Wilshire is, and that's where I'm going. And it's it's south of Hollywood. And so one way, it's about eight miles. Now, the problem with my new job is I have to be there at 4.30 in the morning. Ooh. Ooh. That means <laughs> the alarm clock goes off at 3 a.m. They make alarm clocks that go off that early? They do, <laughs> and I own a couple of them. So oh, in, order, gosh. in order to make sure that I make the call and don't miss my shift, I set three alarm clocks. I have uh, a cell phone bedside. I have your standard issue uh, nightstand clock that also works. Hmm. And I have a wake-up call. It's a free wake-up call service. Every morning when I get up, I have a, a backup call. It goes something like, here's the call I get about 3.30 in the morning. I feel sure you have slept soundly, feel thoroughly refreshed, and await the day with the anticipation of an energetic gazelle. Good heavens, <laughs> I saw a pig <laughs> past the window. 
This was your free wake-up call from wakeupdialer.com. Have an excellent day. <laughs> my favorite part. Have an excellent day. And every day that guy calls, my wife calls him Jeeves. One time I let him roll over to voicemail so she got to hear him. My wife calls him Jeeves. Uh, every day they have a new, they have a little, different little saying. They do a pretty good job of mixing them up. So that that ensures that I get up. That's the last line of defense, Jeeves there. So like I said, what? I have a closer commute, but my routine has kind of changed. Where When I rode to Burbank, Burbank, I, there was a gym. I had access to showers. Again, it was like I would ride in Lycra. I had, if I sweat, I didn't care. I'd go down and take a shower. My new place, no showers. Um... And, but closer and much earlier, as I said. So to accommodate mm-hmm. the no shower, what I do is I shower before I leave. So I get up 3 a.m., jump right in the shower. Now, to for sweat prevention, we're going we're gonna to get down and dirty here, guys. I hope you don't mind. This is going to get— Please do. You coat your entire get, body in antiperspirant? Yeah. No, I, I, I'm do, thinking baby I do lather <laughs> on a good amount of Gillette product under my arms. Here's the other secret. And this was taught to me by my wife. She is a prolific powderer. Powderer. Is that a word? It is now. Lots of, lots of powder oh. going on the body beforehand. Again, What kind of powder? Baby powder. The Johnson okay. & Johnson stuff. Okay. And you put it in all areas where sweat may occur. Follow so me? D- uh, yeah. I, I follow yeah, yeah. you, but I'm kind of thinking that you smell like a baby. I'm thinking thing. you smell cute. Um, <laughs> Adorable. It's lavender, if that helps. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's fine. I mean, to each his, his and or her own, I guess, right? Right. So shower, lavender smelling powder, and mm. then into what I'm going to ride to work. Now, fashion-wise, I, I've obviously changed it up a lot because where before I was a known entity in Burbank, in other words, they knew I was a cyclist. They knew what I was up to on weekends and and when I would show up in Lycra, there was no shock value. But you were out of the got, closet. I have new peeps and new managers and um, a, a bunch of fresh faces who don't quite understand Hadi and his problem with bikes and <laughs> probably don't have a lot of exposure to cyclists themselves. So to avoid the shock value of walking in in what is essentially underwear, I've gone... Uh, with a more casual, baggy-type look. It's still got some Lycra value to it. In other words, I wear um, a base layer on top, not a jersey, just a, a regular base layer on top that helps you know wick away some sweat if I do break out in a sweat going in. And then I'm wearing baggies. Um, and underneath, as opposed to a chamois, I'm just pulling on what are essentially like um, tight... Uh, Lycra-based, stretchy underwear that breathe, that I can wear even through the day. In other words, I can dump my baggies and keep those on and pull on a pair of pants and sit around all day and be totally comfortable. Um, So I'm going shamulous, and I thought that might make you proud, Fatty. Oh, yeah. Good for you. (laughs) One less chamois. So baggies, no chamois, a a base layer on top. I purposely underdress because I want to make sure I, you know, as much as possible, avoid breaking a sweat going into work. It's eight miles. Again, it's like mm-hmm. four in the morning. So uh, the temperatures are right now, it's spring. So the temperatures are, are pretty mild in LA. It's pretty easy to stay sweat free. 
uh, going in. And, and all that seems to work. It's a great ride. It's a great time, actually, to be out on the roads in L.A., surprisingly. Some people are like, what are you doing out riding at 4 in the morning? It's great. I mean, I have the roads to myself. You know, there's practically no one out there. What's uh, your light setup? Can yeah, I ask that? Yeah. The light. Well, I'm going to get to equipment. Yeah. My light okay. setup is I have um, – actually, I have my bike right in here with me. What do I use for a light? I use a British-made light. It's called a joystick, and I forget the brand name now. Hmm. Um, it's not a heavy du- – I'm not throwing like 1,500 lumens out there. It's probably a good 500. Um, the good thing about – I mean, you don't have to light the road in L.A. You just have to be seen. There's enough street lights where I'm going that I don't have to like see every little imperfection on the tarmac. Okay. So I'm running you know, a good headlight that can be seen. I can run it in flash mode. People can definitely see me and a good blinky on the rear. Uh, right. This is this has worked for since um, I, I first started bike commuting in this town in, I want to say, um, in the early 2000s. And, yeah, this is – I've always uh, – I've never had people come up to me, I can't see you. I've never had that comment before. Hmm. So I think I've got this down. I'm not, I'm not maximizing the light situation. But I'm definitely lit up and people can see me. Um, now, equipment. Yeah, let's get to equipment. Uh, I, I'm riding. Well, first of all, once in a while, if I want to make a, a training ride out of the ride home, I will ride my cross bike in, geared bike, and take it up into the hills for some dirt fun and maybe a few intervals or something like that. But otherwise, if it's just a, if it's just working back, I have this cool bike that um, I acquired actually by just – going to my parents' house. There was a, a, a steel bike that was hanging in my folks' rafters for years. And every year I'd go home and I'd look up at it and I'd go, ah, it looks too big for me. And I never did pull it down. The bike had been left by a boyfriend of my sister's. He needed a place to store it and left it there and then never came back for it. And then one year I pulled the bike down and I took out a tape measure and measured the top tube and straddled it and went, well, hell, this thing fits me. <laughs> so I brought it home. The bike is, and I'll spell it for you, a C I O C C. Choch. Very good. Choch. With an umlaut over the I. You are correct. It is a Choch. Some people might mistake it for, based on its paint, a Bianchi. It's almost celeste green, not quite. It's lighter than that. It's more really? of a bluish. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, that's unusual. It's lug steel. It's probably, and Patrick, you're going to have to help me with what I'm writing here. It's probably late 80s. It does have an internally routed brake cable in the top tube. Mm-hmm. That's about all I know about this bike. What, do you, Patrick, do you have any idea what I am riding here? Um, is there a Columbus sticker on the seat tube near the there, bottom bracket? There was. There, wait, wait, how can you say there was? Well, if You got a Wayback Machine or cut, something? It got it got chiseled or peeled off somehow because you know these choches the stickers are just laid on over the paint they don't right, laminate right. them or anything. Yeah, well, yeah, most most of the Italian companies would paint the frames and then put the decals on after the fact with no clear coat. Why they did that, I, I just I you know I don't know. You know, it's like why? Um, yeah, n- never mind. I'm mm-hmm. not going to go there. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you why they didn't bother with uh, you know just one clear coat. That's all it takes. One, one clear coat. Okay. Uh, moving right along. So Columbus tubing. So it's it's a safe bet to say that it's one of three different tube sets: SL, SLX, 
or SP. Actually, there's a fourth option, which is that it could be a mix of SL and SP, given that size. A 57 is right in that transition point for most manufacturers, where uh, a lot of the Italians would use SL, um, a lighter weight set of tubing on their 56, and then they would go to, uh, if they were doing single centimeter increment size runs, they would go to a mix of SL and SP, which was a heavier tube set, um, thicker walls um, on the uh, 57 and 58 and then with the 59 they'd go to all SP so uh, like I had um, uh, I had a Miele uh, which was built in Canada but by an Italian frame maker who was brought over by the sons of the founder of the company and my bike had an SP down tube, but the rest of the uh, bike was made from SL um, so you would see some of that SLX was meant to be a stiffer uh, variant of SL, not quite as heavy as SP. Um, and so there's some chance that it's that. Regardless, when you think about that sort of A-list of Italian builders, the production shops, you know, the, the Bianchi Reparto Corsa, Pinarello, um, you know, certainly DeRosa. When you think about those real quality shops, Choch was right up there. Mm. Super great stuff. I was selling Choches at the Peddler Bike Shop back in the late 1980s. You know, just really great quality stuff. My boss, Hal, uh, had, good Lord, I don't know, a 62? Dude's like 6'5". And uh, yeah, he rode one and, and, you know, was just in love with that bike. Well, when I got this bike, it had Suntour all over it for shifting. Superb Pro? I don't know. You're you're beyond me right now. I I I, <sighs> I did pull that stuff off. Uh, right. I may still. Do you have still? Ha it. Oh, yeah, if I it's, think I still if it's have Superb it. Pro, we might need to talk, buddy. Okay, so I may still have that stashed away somewhere. It also had um, arrow bars on it. So the guy who had it was like a triathlete or something like that. I did strip all the gearing off the bike eventually. And I'm running it as a single speed right now. So it's right now it's a single speed, but I'm contemplating putting it back to geared bike so I can maybe ride it a little bit more, you know, post work. Like jump out from work and take it up the coast a little bit or ride it like it was. And for that, I'll probably put some down tube shifters on it and, and move forward that way. Anyhow, so a choach. And one of the things I, I did buy, and you probably think I'm turning this bike into Frankenstein, Patrick, but it is, it has become a commuter, at least it has life still, is I got some Crank Brothers double shot pedals. And what this enables me to do is the, the pedal is a flat pedal on one side and you flip it over and it's a clip in on the other. So yep. I can ride in in tennis shoes if I want to, or I can ride in with uh, regular cycling shoes if I want. That's that just adds you know nice versatility to how I'm going to approach a day because some days, you know, I may want to ride in in tennis shoes and then stop on the way home or something like that. So I put some double shot pedals on, which are pretty cool. Well, uh, that's not a crime. Well, okay, <laughs> um, I'll get some clips for you if it'll make you happy. Um, for for head protection and bike protection, I'm using a couple of Abus products. Oh, I do have a U-lock from Kryptonite that, that I do use once in a while. But otherwise, I'm using Abus's Bordeaux Granite X Plus 6500. This is the top-of-the-line folding lock. Uh, it is a beast of a lock. I, a thief, even a good thief, it'd be hard-pressed to get through it in under 10 minutes. Um, the good news is the, the bike where I park it, and I park it in the garage of, of my new place of work. There's a valet, so LA. There's a parking valet. <laughs> uh, right there and they keep an eye on the bikes you know well enough so 
And that in addition to the lock, and I'm pretty in pretty good shape. So Border Granite X Plus 6500. This is their highest rated lock. And we're going to talk more about bike security in a coming episode, guys, because we have an interview with Abus, and they talk to us about you know how bikes get stolen, what are the most common ways they see people make mistakes as far as locking up bikes. So we have a nice interview with Abus coming up for a future episode. I'm also wearing uh, an Abus helmet. This is their Yad One. It's a commuter style helmet. Um, it looks almost like a full cased helmet but there are some small vents in it it's got an interesting uh retention system there's no ratchet on it you simply pull the retention uh, system open slip the helmet over your head and then the bands in the retention system just snug around your head so there's not a lot of dialing or adjusting it just it hangs on right there and it works really cool and it looks cool it makes me look like a commuter so uh, those are the things and the the ways i am getting to work now my my bike commuting uh, by day is actually up compared to Burbank. Burbank, I was riding two or three times a week. Frankly, they started getting just worn out. It was just tiring after a while to make that schlep back and forth. But this this ride is short enough that I can knock it out four or five times a week real easy, even if I'm tired. It's no big deal. As far as comparing it to drive time, I can barely beat the bike in by car because by car, you kind of got to drive out of the way a little bit if you want to stay on freeways to get up to mid Wilshire from where I am. So I got no excuse, but to, but to ride to work and it's great. It's, it's, a, it's actually one way to mitigate, to offset kind of that nastiness of getting up at three in the morning and having to be work at four thirty AM Pacific time. So I'm loving it. I'm glad uh, it's great to be back at work, but it's even almost even better. You know, it is better to be riding to work once again. And fatty, you, you're a veteran of bike commuting too, aren't you? I am. Back when I lived in Seattle and worked at Microsoft, I commuted from Sammamish to Redmond. Uh, and How far just, is that? It was about 12 miles mm-hmm. uh, each way. Okay. Um, and it, it was a lot of fun because I was considerably faster on the bike than I would be by car. There uh, was a lot of traffic heading out to Microsoft, of course, you know, every morning. And I would be able to just ride on the very nice shoulder of the road, and everyone was very respectful there. I was I was just really always kind of impressed with how easygoing at least the traffic in that area was about bicycles. But um, partway there, I would cut through the Marymore Park, which has the very awesome Marymore Velodrome, and just you know a, a really nice place. And when I came out of the Marymore Park. I was basically at Microsoft. It was um, it, it was a fantastic place to commute, but of course, with it being Seattle, it was often pretty wet, and I had to think in terms of uh, you know what I was wearing uh, on my bike, of course, to work, what I was going to wear once I got to work, and then I needed usually to figure out and bring something that I would wear on the way home from work because the stuff I wore on the way to work would not have dried yet because of high humidity. Um, and it, there was a nice locker and shower set up in the parking garage, uh, in, in, in many of the parking garages throughout Microsoft. But because of the high humidity, stuff that's hanging in the lockers just was not going to be dry by the time you uh, Oh, was it home. not kosher uh, to like so, hang something up in your cubicle? 
Uh, I had an office, but no. I mean, I I know different people have different levels of stink, and I am probably on the stinky end of that spectrum of stink. Um, so it just it would not have been cool to my coworkers to have uh, have all of those wet uh, kind of musky, stinky clothes draped everywhere mm. in my office. So um, no, I I didn't do that. I would just I would go ahead and leave everything in the in the locker room uh and you know and just go ahead and dress uh in a separate uh you know in a separate set of clothes for on the way back but i had uh in order because you wind up with a lot of stuff (laughs) when you're having to think of uh you know what you're going to wear at work as well as what you're going to wear um on your way back from work and generally during the winter, I would need to think in terms of uh, lights both ways, and so I needed to think about making sure there was enough battery to get me both directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it was a little bit of a project. I solved it with uh, a laminated – I don't know why I laminated it, but I did <laughs> um, – a piece of paper that I just kept thumbtacked to my garage door, garage being where I kept my bike. And it was just essentially a checklist of everything that I needed, you know, keys, wallet, uh, swipe card, uh, chain, lock, you know, everything. And just, you know, walk through that list every single day. And, you know, some days you don't need everything, but uh, boy, it uh, it was no fun. Uh, and you tended to remember on that day when you got to work and discovered that you had forgotten to bring pants. So it's, uh, and I'm sure I'm not the only commuter who has uh, ever found himself in that situation. So, yeah. Oh, um, I stash a know, little clothing at work. I do keep a couple pieces, but I mean, mostly I'm bringing idea. stuff with me, but I do keep a few. If in case I don't want to carry stuff in, I have a pair of pants and a couple shirts there. So, mm-hmm. just to bail yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, I kept my shoes. I kept a pair shoes, of shoes yep. in my office just so I didn't have to carry shoes each way each day. But it was kind of just basically a Mister Rogers thing, you know. You get into your office and put on your yep. actual shoes. Chuck Taylors. I got um, my Chuck there. <laughs> there you go. Yep. There you go. Yep. Um, yeah. So by commuting, I mean it. It requires a complete, well, not a completely different set of cycling skills, but certainly a supplemental set of biking skills of, you know, how to do it and still wind up at work in a non-offensive manner to your coworkers. And, I mean, it sounds like you're doing a great job of accommodating that, Hottie. It's, I mean, in Seattle, I would imagine at least bike, you know, bike commuting is embraced and accepted there. And you're not, oh yeah, you know, people aren't shocked when you show up on a bike at work. LA is much different. This is a car town first. People are afraid to ride their bikes on the street for the most part. So when you do ride to work, there's a shock value and you end up explaining yourself quite a bit. Yes, I ride to work. Yes, it's okay to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah there are cars. Some people don't like us. Um, you might break a bit of a sweat. Sure, that can happen, but it's doable. Even in a town like this, it is doable. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like you, I am glad I, I navigated my way through the, you know, various little loopholes and and hurdles that you need to get over to to make it happen because i think it's a great way to to start the day and end the day it is um in particular the starting the day i mean just getting to work having done something physical uh is uh just i don't know you arrive at work feeling good 
and it's nice. It's really nice. So, uh, you know, I work at home now, and while we, while you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I miss the work commute, and there's nothing stopping me from going on a ten mile bike ride at the beginning of my day to get you know get the blood flowing. But you know, if you don't have to, if there's no destination, it's not as easy to do. Right. So you know, having having to get somewhere on your bike in the morning. There's a value to that independent of the fact that you are saving gas and money and all of those things that come from not taking the car. I mean, just doing a group ride before you get your day started, you know, knowing that if you don't get the ride in now, first thing in the morning, you probably won't get the ride in. Um, I, I miss that part of my Southern California life. Um, that was That was certainly good stuff. And when I was uh, bike commuting, I kept baby wipes and an electric razor at work. Mm-hmm. Huh. Very cool. Yeah, I definitely uh, know about the baby wipes, which I've used a lot uh, for midday uh, rides, you know, yeah. lunch rides. Uh, not so much uh, Not so much uh, for the pre, pre-work commute. Always, always was lucky enough that I had a shower that I could get uh, access to for the bike commute. Nifty. So I, let's ask our listeners, of, uh, of which I would expect there are many who do bike commute, leave us a comment. Tell us your tips for bike commuting. Uh, it's obviously an art plus science, and we'd yeah. like to know more. And it sounds like something Hottie can use right now. Hmm. And, if, and if they're not, right. why not? Yeah. We, we ask in an accusatory no, no, way. No, 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 no. We're just curious. It's like, <laughs> what what about their lives yeah. is too uh, inhospitable to it? You know, I'm, I'm always kind of mm. curious about that. Um, you know, what sort of social or otherwise pressures are there? You know, is it too long? Um, is there just no way to get cleaned up when you get there? I'm, you know, that's stuff I'm curious about. Yeah. Got to dress too nice. Yeah. Th- th- there are reasons. No question about it. But we're going to leave it there. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and then we're going to spit in your soup. Well, not literally, but that's next on the Pace Line. All right, Pace Liners. I'm in the uh, final stretch of my little ride to work here. Been a good ride in, and uh, it's a success because I haven't broken a serious sweat. It means I've regulated my speed properly. I'm not going to blow away the staff. When I get in there, uh, just a few short hours from now, this area I'm riding through will be humming with activity. But for right now, the streets of LA are mine. We've been talking about Health IQ and how they are helping people to source better rates on life insurance. Recently, they updated their site with new insurers and the ability to serve more people. They've got special rates for cyclists, of course, and runners and triathletes, but also vegans and other health-conscious people now. We've mentioned they have quizzes, and these aren't just for fun. If you score elite on a quiz for a specific lifestyle, that can earn you a further discount on your life insurance. They've also replaced BMI with waist-to-hip ratio, which is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease when it comes to athletes. 
Additionally, they replaced the LDL to HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for people on low carb or paleo diets because that's a better predictor of cholesterol health. Amazingly, they will not take into account one incidence in a family history if you are otherwise healthy. It's like a get out of jail card. In other words, if one person in your family has had cancer or diabetes, they won't ding you for it. Finally, they can also get better rates for those with runner's heart or hypertension. Check them out at healthiq.com slash paceline. The Paceline, the podcast on two wheels, Patty, Hottie, Fatty, and now it's time for an interview. Uh, Patty, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and start saying Patrick again. Oh, shoot me now. <laughs> At some point, I've begun to annoy myself with this, <laughs> saying that. But you recently had an interview with the author of Spitting in yes, the Yes, Mark right? Johnson. Mark, you know, of the many mm-hmm. people who write about cycling uh, or just are in the media regarding cycling, Johnson is one of my absolute favorites. This is a guy who has a PhD in English literature. So he not only knows what good writing is, he really knows how to craft a fine sentence. And for reasons that are never going to be apparent to me, even despite his efforts to explain it to me, he's also an exceptionally gifted photographer. If you were to follow him on social media and look at his surfing shots, you'd wonder what the hell he was doing writing about cycling. But for two years, he spent time after having, he wrote this book called Argyle Armada about uh, Jonathan Vauder's uh, team, you know, the what was then Garmin Chipotle. And uh, he got interested in the whole subject of doping and ended up spending two years researching the subject and digging back through the past of this. So it's a it's a truly fascinating book that VeloPress has published, and I wanted to get on the phone to talk with him more about it. So here I am with Mark. Hi, Mark. Uh, thanks so much for agreeing to do this interview with us today for The Pace Line. Um, how are you doing? You're, I know you're based in San Diego. Are you there right now? I'm actually not. I'm up in Mammoth lakes uh doing a little skiing with my son who's a freshman at ucsb and he's got spring break so we're up here doing a little downhoming and there's a lot of snow still in <laughs> late march in mammoth oh yeah it sounds like they'll be skiing for quite a while huh easily till july 4th <laughs> no question <laughs> excellent so the reason i wanted to have you on the show was to discuss your book spitting in the soup i've got so many questions coming out of having read that. Um, it's I know it's been out for a few months now, but in my mind, it's still very present tense. And I've got a billion questions for you. You know, the first one I want to just jump right in with is, you know, where did the inspiration for the book come from? Well, it really came from, I spent the 2011 year traveling with Jonathan Vauder's team. It was then called Garmin Savella. And... Vauder's whole shtick was he's going to try and create this team that can race at the Tour de France level without doping. And when I went into that, you know, I didn't know if it was a sham or if it was just a marketing gimmick. Uh, but in the year that I spent with him, I think that he really is sincere and he did want to try and create a culture where cyclists were not expected to dope. 
And that really triggered my interest in it. And as I started to look into the history of doping in sport, to my great surprise, there's a huge body of academic research into the history of doping in sport. And what quickly came, became apparent to me was that our current de facto assumption that doping is morally and physically destructive is a relatively new construct that really came to came to be in the 1960s but for the first hundred years of pro cycling was really pro cycling started in the 1860s 1870s with the industrial revolution you it was expected that you would turn to chemical substances to do your job as a cyclist or a marathoner and so that sort of triggered my interest and well let's look at this history because for most people we just assume that doping is bad and it always has been bad but that wasn't the case at all so that's what I wanted to write this history about. Now, one of the things that I found so interesting was, you know, you went down the full rabbit hole of Coubertin and the Olympic movement. Um, I'm curious, you know, as you were doing your research and working backward, once you came up against him and what the Olympics were supposed to be, you know, viewing it from a contemporary standpoint, how did that strike you? What what was the effect of that on you? Well, for for your listeners, it kind of depends on how old they are. Because anyone who's sort of started watching the Olympics after 1988, it's assumed that professionals have always been part of the Olympics. But before 1988, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, their big demon that they were trying to get out, keep out of the Olympics was professionals. And that came from... Coubertin, who was a French aristocrat, who, when he created the first Olympic Games in 1896, it was really seen as a sort of form of social prophylactic. He saw the Olympics as a place where wealthy, entitled, white aristocrats could practice their sport without being infected by proximity to proletarian workers who had to go to work in a mine or a factory to do their, their work. And so that's really where the cult of amateurism came from is that the Olympic games were designed for people who didn't have to work because they inherited money and they were seen as both socially and um, sort of through bloodline uh, superior to the inferior lower classes. So yeah. Do I think that that's a loss the Olympics that we've, that that cult of amateurism is lost. One of the things that I learned in writing the book is that, well, it's, not that shiny of a of a heritage to to follow anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, looking. So it's hard to get it's hard to get too nostalgic about the loss of the amateurism that Coubertin had in mind because it was it was really a very elitist objective. Right, and you know, as I was reading it, I was thinking about you know some of what's going on on college campuses in terms of gender politics identity politics and how, you know, under the right sort of circumstances, you bring up this ideal on a college campus and I could see it being taken apart with some malice. I, you know, I don't, I don't think that in terms of modern thought, we would have, you know, evolved modern thought anyway, we would have a lot of tolerance for it. For Coubertin's original ideal? Yes, I don't think so at all. No, uh, because it, it is. No, I don't. I don't think we would. All, we would have that. It, it would be a 
rejected out of hand. Yeah. And yet we because still, it's, because it is, it's, Go ahead. By nature, it's an exclusionary, it's an exclusionary, exclusive type of club where people of certain races and social classes were barred at the door. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, you know, in some ways, the worst example of white privilege. You know, it's just yeah, oh yeah. Now he's he, you know, Cooperton, in his defense, um, because it's it's always dangerous for us to superimpose our values today upon. Uh, values from the late 1800s. Sure. In his defense, he was very concerned because the French had been humiliated in the Franco-Prussian War of 1871. And he saw, or maybe it was 1870, forgive me if I get my year wrong, but he saw this loss where basically the, the French went and invaded Germany, which was then called Prussia, and just got their butts kicked. And it was seen as, as evidence that French males had lost their virility and power, and it was really seen as a crisis of identity for the French nation. So partly what Coubertin was doing in creating these games was creating a, a, an arena where Frenchmen and Englishmen and other British uh, European aristocrats could reprove their virility, and, and it, was, it was also closely wed with a, a sense of, of Christian masculinity. It was the, the wedding of your intellectual pursuit with the honing of the physical body was really what he was after in creating these Olympics. Wow. Fascinating stuff. I'm curious, you know, given how thoroughly, exhaustively the book was researched, what was, you know, what were your biggest surprises? You know, not so much the takeaways, but the things that you encountered where you thought, oh, okay, didn't see that coming. Because I had that experience a number of times, uh, a number of times in reading the book. Well, I think one of the biggest surprises is coming to the understanding that doping is not a matter of individuals, morally corrupt individuals lacking the courage to make the right decision, making bad decisions. It's very much, doping is very much a, a result of a collective effort. That, that in many places fans are part of and taxpayers are part of. And so doping is, is much a, a, a result of political, social policy decisions as it is a result of individual athletes making bad decisions. And I think there's no clearer example of that than the Cold War, where mm -hmm. East Germany and the Soviet Union essentially put together a massive state-funded doping program, and particularly in the case of East Germany, it was an effort to make East Germany great again, because East, East Germany had been humiliated in World War II. They were occupied by the Soviet Union. The Olympics, with a big assist from uh, 2,000, uh, 2 million annual doses of steroids, was seen as a way to, to reconstitute the collapsed German identity. And so the athletes who were doped, I mean, in many cases, before they were 18 years old, particularly the East German women, didn't even know they were getting steroids because they were just told it's, it's, they were vitamins. Yeah, this that's incredible. Regular, this, this collusion or the intersection of, of national ambition and, and doping persists today because we saw that in both Sochi and Rio where the Russians 
under Putin's instructions, have been systematically doping their athletes and systematically putting together uh, programs where they could foil the doping tests. Right. Nothing has changed in the sense of these massive political forces working to foil still struggling uh, efforts to clean up sports. I'm curious. I mean, as a result of having uh, done all this research, having written the book, um, I, I, I'm curious about how your views have changed uh, with regard to doping. I mean, you talk about, you know, at the outset, you know, watching Vauders and his attempts to run a completely clean program. Um, is it fair to surmise that at the outset you thought, oh, hey, that'd be a pretty nice thing? Yeah, I mean, I thought certainly uh, in the sense of creating a level playing field, creating an environment where a kid who discovers this enormous talent for cycling at 18 and then goes over to the, or an American kid or an Australian and moves to Belgium at the age of 20 and has to make a decision, well, if I'm going to stick here, I got to dope. Sure, I think that would be great if they didn't have to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the big, big sort of breakthroughs that I came to is that creating this level playing field is, is incredibly difficult because of the nationalistic forces and also because of commercial forces. So it's, it's, I think it's a worthy project uh, mm-hmm. because I don't think that it's morally right to expect an 18 year old kid to go find some sketchy doctor or go to their swanier who has no, no medical training and ask them to dope them. That's just not right. But on the other hand, it's complicated because as Americans, particularly in comparison to Europeans, Americans have taken a very, very different attitude towards doping in sport. Here's a good example. The French and the Belgians criminalized doping in sport in 1965. It took 35 full years, the year 2000, for the United States to even form an anti-doping agency. Why? Because we take a much more pragmatic approach to medicine. Look, if you're a football player, a baseball player, a cyclist, and you want to dope, as long as you're not hurting anyone else, American attitude is, yeah, that's fine, go for it. Whereas Mm -hmm. in Europe, uh, they tend to take a much more paternalistic attitude towards protecting athletes from exploitation. And that was the genesis of those, those... early laws in Belgium and France in 1965. So, you know, for Americans to, to rail against doping in sport, it's in many levels pretty hypocritical, particularly considering that we are one of the few countries in the world that allow uh, the advertising of performance-enhancing drugs like Viagra, Adderall, uh, on television. Right. So on one hand, we, we love to demonize drugs, but then we can't take enough of them. <laughs> At the same time, if we're demonizing drugs, we're swallowing them by the fistful. Yeah. So circling back to the question I started to ask and didn't quite finish. I mean, so having written the book, how have your views on doping evolved? I mean, you, certainly the book reads, you know, it's entirely objective. It's really pragmatic. Um, who is the Mark Johnson who finished that book? Well, I'm, I would say that my attitudes and opinions have evolved in this way. I think that 
cleaning up sport is way, way, way more complicated than you could even imagine. It's, it's just throwing athletes in jail or banning them from their sport for eight years. That's not going to solve the problem. Yeah. All, all that is, is doing is it's not addressing the root causes of, of drugs in sport, which are very closely wed to our fanatical love of drugs in everyday life. <laughs> and so it's it's an incredibly difficult project to say, okay, all of you people who choose to pursue sports as a profession, you don't get all the drugs that everybody else in society takes. Um, and there's, there's an essential hypocrisy in mm-hmm. banning doping in sport that makes the project very, very difficult. That doesn't say it's not worth pursuing. I mean, a lot of times people read this book and they go, so are you pro-doping? I say, no, not at all. I think particularly as, as Americans, um, I think pursuing, having sports pursue the framework or the attitudes towards performance enhancing drugs that Americans have as a society at large is not the right way to go. Just full on laser fair, free for all. No, it's, it's no good. Both morally and physically for the athletes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But cleaning it up it's incredibly difficult, if not impossible. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a complicated answer. It's certainly going to be a complicated future. Uh, but it's a, it's an absolutely fascinating read. You know, one of the things that I used to do in graduate school was, you know, as I read something, uh, you know, any sort of academic piece, I frequently find myself going back and rating the footnotes and going, well, what was this thing he looked up? And, I can't recall in my life another book on cycling of any sort where I spent more time going back through the notes and the footnotes uh, to see, you know, what was it he turned up and just, you know, in part being amazed by the volume of work you did for this. It's a hell of an undertaking. I don't think I've read another book in cycling that could possibly be as exhaustively researched as this one. So, you know, thanks for your work on this. Um, and it's something that I'm going to be continuing to chase bits of for some years to come, I expect. Well, thanks for, for definitely acknowledging that. I mean, one of the things is this, this book challenges a lot of received wisdom. And so, for instance, when I'm, I pretty much dismantle the notion that EPO is, has killed any athletes ever, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. a received wisdom in cycling. Oh, you can't take EPO. That's going to kill you. It killed 18 Belgian cyclists or Dutch cyclists in the early 90s. There's no evidence that that ever happened. In fact, EPO is very, very safe under doctor supervision. Um, and so when I'm making those claims, you know, I had to, to cite a lot of evidence to suggest that, no, it's not going to kill you. Now, that isn't, that isn't, should not be equated with an argument that, oh, Mark Johnson says that I should go take EPO to go before I do my local industrial park crit. Right. No, I'm just saying that in many cases, anti-doping bureaucracies as they grew started to turn to myths uh, to help bolster their argument that doping is fatal to your physical self. And there's not a lot of evidence that that's true, particularly under doctor supervision. Yeah. But, so it was really a, a useful myth, a useful lie to pursue a higher moral good, which is to try and get drugs out of sport, which is a worthy, worthy uh, cause. Yeah. 
But I, you know, the thing that ultimately I was reminded of are, you know, those those films that were made as, you know, cautionary tales about marijuana and other things, you know, like Reefer Madness back in the 50s. You know, it's like, well, you know, everybody laughs at it because we we know it was just so preposterous, the things they were claiming. So uh, I, I'm a big proponent of, you know, objective truth. And that's one of the things that I really loved about the book was your absolutely relentless pursuit of what really happened. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It was great fun. So again, that was Mark Johnson, the author of Spitting in the Soup from Velo Press. Um, book is easily available online. You can get the ebook, whatever you need. I highly recommend this for anyone who's ever cared about the two subjects of bike racing and doping. It it certainly forever altered my view of you know that facet of the sport. Uh, made me more open minded, uh, more empathetic, and I already thought that I had a pretty good take uh, on the subject, but. Very fascinating guy. I look forward to catching up with him again some other time. Fantastic. I'm just a little disappointed that it's not really very much about soup. <laughs> I, I love me a good book about soup and spitting. Uh, <laughs> let's shift on to the news. Maybe um, I suppose so. We're going to start actually with uh, what cannot be called anything but sad, rotten news. Uh, Chad Young, uh, a, a very young pro racer, uh, also a student at the Colorado School of Mines, uh, a school that uh, was close to where I lived as I grew up, and we always revered the people who could even get into that school because it was so, and remains so excellent, uh, died in a uh, in a wreck uh, this week. Um it's it, I, I you know, honestly I just don't even know what to say about this. I, I obviously did not know Chad, but uh, he was well known, well loved, uh, well respected, uh, both for his intellect as well as for his ability on the bike. Uh, what do you well, guys? Well, this know? was the Tour of the Gila, which is a really fine stage race, uh, a traditional proving ground for climbers uh, in the Southwest, um, and. You know, this is a guy who, you know, was on the Axion, uh, Axion team run by uh, Axel Merckx, a very, very promising rider. He'd come up through the junior ranks with Toby Stanton's Hot Tubes team. And, you know, there he became, you know, basically part of that family. And so this is a guy who has, you know, he's not just some hot shot rider that we lost. This was a guy who had roots that went deep in the cycling community, even though he was only 21. He'd had the chance to be mentored by some really fantastic people. And, you know, he was on a trajectory to, you know, to really develop into something special. And, you know, it was a high speed crash on a descent, just terribly unfortunate. Um, and, you know, initially he was airlifted out and they thought, you know, okay, we're going to get on top of this. I'm not clear on what the turn in his condition was. Um, but after arriving at the hospital, uh, he later passed away. And, um, you know, I suppose at some point that, you know, we'll learn more about that, but, you know, at a certain level, it's not terribly relevant. You know, uh, this is just a, an awful tragedy, uh, for the cycling community. It's not often that a rider dies in a race. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Chad Young, Michele Scarponi, Steve Tilford. We've lost uh, you know three important people, uh, three different people, but but very important to cycling. Um, and uh, let's hope we can <laughs> hope we can get through the summer without without any more messes, any more tragedies. But yeah, our hearts go out to the yeah. Young family for sure. No question. So this may be a sort of related news item, but there was at least briefly going to be a descending competition as part of the Giro d'Italia. And that is no longer the case, partially because of the reaction to it, but also, um, well, I, I would say partially because of reaction to it by racers and perhaps by others in the cycling industry and outside the cycling industry, which brings up the question, is that it? do, do we have the power now to make changes in a cycling race? And then the second question, what were they thinking that it was ever even considered? <laughs> um, <laughs> I I obviously don't think that it, it – I, I have such a rough time even imagining the pitch meeting where they're saying, you know what, guys? We ought to have a, a separate race where people can throw themselves out even further ahead of themselves and take even greater risks and possibly be injured mm-hmm. because racing isn't already dangerous enough. You know, the, the Giro is one of the hardest and yet most beautiful races in the history of the sport. I mean, think about, you know, the images, the snow-covered face of Andy Hampson in 88, cresting the Gavia, the Maglia Rosa, the dedicated Tifosi lining the Stelvio. There's not much the organizers really need to do, right? I mean, they hit the Alps, they hit the Dolomites, they let the drama unfold. It will happen. Yeah. You don't need to jazz it up. And, and this was... It just didn't seem very well thought out at all. Like the KOM, at least with KOMs, it's the guys who crossed the mountain passes first at score points. With this king of descents or whatever you want to call it, it's just anybody in the pack could have been the winner of the day or winners of the day. It was just based on time. So it wasn't like the first guy down the descent was going to to win this descent challenge. It was just whoever was fastest. It was kind of this crazy Strava induced I, I don't know what <laughs> that, that came over the jeer all of a sudden but thank god mm. thank god they came but, to their senses or somebody did and said look you got a beautiful race it's a fantastic race it's a hard race don't mess it up keep that going but i think that patrick actually has a different perspective yeah on i i mean my personal take is that bike racing ought to embrace every facet of riding a bicycle you know, we've got competitions for who goes uphill fastest. We've got competitions for the youngest guy. We've got a competition for the fastest overall guy. You know, show me the logic of not uh, of not exploring who descends fastest. Um, I, I don't see that. And, you know, should riders think and be prudent about how they descend? Absolutely. You know, should they take unnecessary risks? No. You know, the point for me in saying, oh, this is stupid, you know, asking riders to go as fast as possible downhill, you know, the GC riders are going to play it cool anyway. They've always done that. But, you know, if you want to say, oh, that's way too dangerous, just look at video from a sprint, a final sprint, especially on a sprinter's stage. If you want to see insanity, 
a sprint scares me way worse than descending at 50 miles an hour. You know, I just, it's, you know, it's, I think deemed imprudent from a standpoint that doesn't necessarily lack a lot of objective data. Well, I think where a lot of the objections came from was the lack of, say, for instance, uh, there was no idea how the descents would be neutralized. What if the the rule book did not say, look, if we have bad weather, we'll neutralize the descent competition. There was nothing in there for that. So they 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 just didn't think it through enough. Maybe maybe if you if you were to uh, sit everyone down, including the writers union and say, look, we'd love to start something that rewards the best descender and bring the groups together and say, how can we best do this? We want to showcase this skill and not have it be the Red Bull Rampage, mind you, but we want to showcase the skill of descending. How can we do this? And maybe they arrive at something that brings safety into mind, yet awards, you know, what truly is bravery and a skill. I also want to note, you know, let's not forget the fact that in 2005, Paolo Savaldelli had been in pink, was written out of pink, and then regained the jersey thanks to a super fast descent. So, uh, you know, his name, uh, you know, nickname, Il Falco. Um, you know, he was known for being a fast descender. And it's one of those things where, I, you know, I once heard, uh, you know, one of the American GC hopes, um, TJ Van Garderen, in fact, you know, talk about how people just really shouldn't be going fast on the descents. And it's like, it's a bike race, you know, you go fast everywhere you can. Um, you know, if you, if you crash yourself out of the race, well, then you made a bad choice. Um, do I want to see riders injured? Absolutely not. I don't want to see anybody go down ever. Um, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to use the full range of your skill to go down a descent with whatever, you know, you have within your ability. Um, and, you know, also, I mean, even if you get two or three guys who are, you know, really trying to drop the pack, descending in a small group like that, uh, or even when it's the Peloton altogether, you know, generally it's pretty single file. You don't have guys five across the road bumping shoulders and throwing elbows. Uh, I, I just, I think, I think that descending is far less dangerous and risky than a lot of the sprint finishes are. We should have arguments more often. <laughs> we could go on forever. We could run, we could have a three hour podcast right now, the three of us going back and forth and back and forth on this, on this topic alone. I mean, I could certainly say more. I think it's at this point we would just spin our Fair wheels. Enough. Yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, to, to keep going back. Because there are good arguments on both sides. Descending is a sure. skill. There are great descenders. There'll be great descending this year in the Giro, minus the competition. Um, but is there room to try and add things? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it could it be dangerous? Yeah, it could be dangerous too. Should we award this type of activity? M- maybe. Okay. I'm good with that. So, TBD, <laughs> TBC, BLT. BLT. All right. Oh, yeah. You can tell it's close to dinner time. We are at the last news item in our list today, the final hopper of the season. Are you guys I am. Yeah. Uh, yeah. King Ridge Dirt Supreme. Uh, there are two versions this time, uh, 60 miles with a bunch of dirt, and then 80 miles with uh, more pavement and even more dirt. 
the problem I face is that the grand opening celebration with the city for the Santa Rosa pump track is that afternoon. And so I'm trying to figure out, should I do the 60s so that I can make sure to be at the pump track celebration? Because there's also a 10 lap enduro that's going to happen at the pump track. And I'm wondering, should I try to keep a little bit in my pocket for that? Um, I only managed 10 laps of the pump track uh, a couple days ago for the first time. That was that was really, really hard. But yeah. Does the 60 go up Fort Ross? It does. So the 60 is... Then you'll have nothing. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you'll be saving nothing in the end. That will do. That the, the Fort Ross climb is what. Yeah. Is what ultimately ends up in your legs at the yeah. end of the so day. So the the difference between this and other hoppers. Normally, all the hoppers start in Occidental. This one starts in Duncan Mills. Then you ride to Occidental, climb Coleman Valley, and descend Willow Creek, and then start up Highway One. This one, uh, the sixty mile, also starts in Duncan's Mills. And then you just start up Highway 1. It leaves out the Col the ride to Occidental up Coleman Valley and down Willow Creek. Mm -hmm. So you get the Salt Point descent. You get the climb up Cruise Ranch. You, yeah. you get the Fort Ross climb and the climb up from Hauser Bridge. And then all the devastation of King Ridge. So... Yeah, I'm I'm beginning to think that maybe the 60 is enough, especially because I've had so many opportunities to descend Willow Creek this year. But my gosh, descending Willow Creek is so much fun. It's a yeah. lot of fun. Uh, but we're hearing <laughs> we're hearing that there the I believe it was the descent in, on Salt Point uh, is surprisingly wet, given that it's already May now, and. The, uh, there was a, a photo posted by uh, the organizer, Miguel, uh, on social media where he had just jammed his bike in the mud and was standing upright. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a little wet. Well, at least it isn't so sloppy that it fell down after you jammed <laughs> in the mud. Right. I'm looking yeah, for upside yeah. here. So I'm I'm excited. I'm bummed that I didn't manage to ride all of them this year, so I won't get one of those medals. But uh, I'm I'm excited to be out there again, and I'm I'm going to be on my Danucci again. So that'll be just terrific fun. I can't wait. All right, fantastic. Let's go on to the paceline picks. I'm going to go first this time, all if right. that's okay, guys. Mm -hmm. Have you? Have you heard of the Tune Spur True? Do what to whom? Stem wheel alignment tool. I don't know if I'm saying it, pronouncing it properly, but it's a Denmark company called Tune, and the object, the tool, is called the Spur True. S P U R T R E U, and it is a tool to align your front tire, your front wheel, with your stem. Oh, good grief! Because it is so hard to trust your own eyes when you do that. You know, you let, you do, you're doing that left eye, right eye, winking, blinking thing, saying, is this aligned? And then you get on your bike later and you're riding and you're like, I'm not sure these things are lined up. And pretty soon it's all you can <laughs> think about. These guys have created a tool where it has a laser pointer at the end of it and it and, and with carved out segments that notch onto either side of your handlebar and your stem. So it, so it's triangulated there and then points a laser forward. And then you just need to adjust your bars until the laser is pointing straight at the center of your How wheel. much does this thing cost? It costs 80 bucks. 
There you go. 80 bucks, I believe. Wow. Best 80 bucks you'll ever spend, man. That's my sight lines, dude. Sight lines. It's easy to line up. (laughs) So how do you do it? Tell me what you mean by sight lines. Well, okay. So like when I'm aligning uh, the the bar uh, to the front wheel, there's a way, there's usually like something that you can use uh, to, to match uh, how even it is. So like I'll look down uh down the bar at the fork and then if it's a a steel bike with a crown i'll line up the bar uh i'll find an angle where i can see the inside uh edge of the bar and line that up with the forward edge of the fork crown or i'll line up the bar relative to the dropout so that i'm looking down just beyond the front of the bar down at the dropouts and just use that as a way to line it up. But yeah, there are, there are ways that, you know, even if you're a little bit crooked, you could still get, a, you know, do a really good job of lining those up. I don't know. 80 bucks. I that's all. Know. That's all very sensible and practical, but it has one big problem and you, you? know what it is? <laughs> no lasers. <laughs> you like any answer that involves lasers? Dude, and sharks. Wait, it includes a shark? <laughs> oh, yeah. Free shark with every box. <laughs> I didn't mention no. the shark. Oh. Okay. 80 bucks. That was a and big a mistake on my I'm part. in. And a laser. It's a shark with a laser mount. Patrick, what is okay, your pick? So, uh, last fall, I got hit by a very large car. Now, I was in my car when I was hit, so I'm okay. But my previous Thule hitch rack uh, really took the brunt of it. Um, and it was, it was knocked not so much into next week, but next month. And uh, so I had to replace it. Since then, I've been using the Kuat Sherpa 2.0. And I have really come to love this thing. It's not nearly as big and bulky as a lot of the hitch racks out there. Um, and yet, it's still remarkably adaptable you know and capable and you know when i looked at what the other racks were capable of carrying you know like the nv 2.0 will hold up to a 60 pound bike the sherpa 2.0 only holds a bike up to 40 pounds and it's like well wait a second you know i only have one bike that weighs more than 40 pounds and that's my you know my cargo bike that i get my kids around on you know it's like i don't i don't really need to carry 200 pounds on the back of my car Um, so I've been really pleased with this. The thing, I don't want to say the thing that I like best about it, but what does really appeal to me about Kuat racks relative to some of the other options out there is that they look so professional, so clean, so polished. Uh, it's a much Mm. more, uh, it's a much more attractive thing to put on the back of your car than a lot of the racks out there. So many of them still look so industrial, um, or just kind of all business. Whereas, you know, this is something that doesn't make your car look worse. Um, and so, mm. uh, my, my review of the Sherpa 2.0 will be going live, uh, on RKP in the next couple days. Awesome. I'm going to go ahead and jump in as a proud recent owner of the Kuat Envy 2.0 and agree with everything you say with, of course, the bonus that with the Envy, you do the get the, the 
Yeah, you, you get the repair rack, but even more than that, it is, it, I mean, it just is a little bit bigger, sturdier. And I have the add-on, so I can put four bikes on mm. there. And it is a nice-looking rack. And I think that, that that was true of their 1.0 NV as well, that they, like you say, they took some time thinking that there are many people who have nice bikes and nice cars why not have a rack that actually has some aesthetic appeal instead of being, you know, thinking about form, not at all, just function, yeah. right? This is something that has a, has a real nice aesthetic to it. So I like Whoa. mine too. No, Patrick, Hadi. you get to. It's Hadi's oh. turn. <laughs> Me. <laughs> of course. Ah, sorry. I Hadi meant to say. Hottie. You did. Hottie. Yeah. What's your pick? My page line pick. Bike advocates both in big sky country and across the country you see out-of-state bike riders that would be all of us out-of-state bike riders have scored a big victory in montana the montana house of natural resources committee has turned down a bill that if passed would have charged a 25 dollars non-resident bike fee ride your bike in into or through montana you get hit with 25 bucks this win was achieved by the quick advocacy response from constituents, people for bikes, Bike Walk Montana, and Adventure Cycling. Cyclists, we should note, have had a tough go in the Montana State Legislature this year, and in particular with one lawmaker, Senator Scott Sales. Under the guise of the Invasive Species Act, Sales proposed hitting out-of-state riders with a $25 fee. Now, Montana does have a problem with invasive mussels, being carried into the state and potentially damaging the ecosystem. But Sales clearly has an axe to grind with cyclists. In addition to the out-of-state fee, Sales uh, wanted to hit riders older than 16, even residents, with an annual $25 fee. And on the floor of the Senate, during a speech, Sales went on a general tirade against bike riders in which he called them rude and self-centered, and explain <laughs> that he didn't think the state should invite any more because they are already too many of them. Wow. Thankfully, his, uh, his bill failed. He is a failure. Look, Montana has a tourism uh, income of about $3.5 billion. And attaching a $25 fee to out-of-state cyclists is a sure way to cut into those billions. Uh, we want to thank People for Bikes, Bike Walk Montana, and Adventure Cycling. Which is based in Montana. Pick, or at least my yeah. baseline pick. Yeah. Adventure Cycling is. Absolutely. For uh, <sighs> for paying attention and doing something about an ill-advised bill. Yeah, no joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Nice work. Very nice pick. What's going on and uh, what's coming up on RKP in the next? Uh, Let's see. Patrick? Well, uh, we're through our sea otter uh, content. I'm pleased to say that didn't uh, that didn't go on for too terribly long. Um, Damn. Let's I love it. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, so I've got the Envy 2.0 rack. Uh, or, sorry, the Sherpa 2.0 rack review going up live soon. Um, there was uh, just a post that I did yesterday, uh, as people listen to this, I guess two days ago, um, about how my youngest, uh, Matthew, who's also known to our readers as the Deuce, has just begun to learn to ride a bike. Um, and uh, I'm 
pretty stoked over this. I'm pretty stoked over his progress. Um, and uh, yeah, he's he's really getting it and he's really into it. I think we've got another convert here. Uh, so that's that's an exciting one. Cool. Yeah. And uh, let's see. Uh, also, for those people who are still dealing with rain, there's a review of the Seal Skins waterproof cycling cap, which I was using while I was in Japan and getting rained on on a near daily basis. So. Uh, the first time that somebody's come up with a cycling cap that wasn't all cotton that I actually like. Some good gear in there and a little bit of heartstring tugging as well. I think that's going to cover it for this episode of The Pace Line. Thanks so much for listening. As we always say, subscribe, rate, tell your friends, review. You'll find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Holy cow, you can find us everywhere. It's hard to miss us, frankly. You'll trip on us. That's right. Find us on SoundCloud. Why not? For a hottie, for Patty, a.k.a. Patrick, I'm Fatty. This has been The Pace Line. Best podcast in cycling by far.